0: The Old Testament reading is Psalm 85. I'll read the whole psalm. And this is the Word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him. And make his footsteps away. Uh, You can keep your place there. That is our sermon text this morning. But for our New Testament reading, let's hear from John's Gospel. John chapter uh, 7 or John chapter 17 verses 1 through 3. John 17, 1 through 3. And this is the beginning of the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed um, on the night uh, of the, the last supper with his disciples. And in this prayer, Jesus uh, tells us that uh, he is the source of eternal life. Uh, the psalmist prayed uh, to the Lord that he would revive his people. In other words, that he would give them new life. Well, that, that life comes uh, from Jesus, as he testifies uh, in these verses. So John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As you know, today is the last day of 2023, and there's something about uh, an old year passing and a new year coming uh, that brings uh, for us uh, into sharp focus uh, the reality that um, all is not as it should be um, in our lives, uh, that there are areas in our lives that we recognize that we need to improve uh, to be better. And so we make our New Year's resolutions. Uh, This year, I'll start exercising more. Or I'll stop, uh, or I'll spend less time on my phone. Or I'll spend more time with my kids. Or this year, I'm going to be more diligent in my studies. Or this year, I'll finally get my closets cleaned out and organized. And we experience something similar in our Christian life as well, in our walk with the Lord. Uh, the new year brings with it a fresh recognition that all is not as it should be uh, in my heart and in my life as a Christian. Um, I do not pray as fervently or as frequently as I should. I ought to spend more time in the scriptures, uh, reading the word of God. I, I don't have the joy of, of knowing Christ that I once had. I, I seem to be spiritually lethargic. Um, I see in my heart too little uh, love for God, too little love uh, for my neighbor. I see at the same time uh, too much love for myself. And so we recognize our need for new life. We see that we need to be renewed and and restored in the the joy and the strength of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, because we need this new life from God, uh, this psalm that we That we heard Psalm 85, this ancient psalm, uh, still speaks to us as the people of God today, just as powerfully as it spoke to the people of God, uh, to the Israelites in their day. That we need to pray for God's work of renewal, revival in us. And so on this New Year's Eve, as we find ourselves on the cusp of a new year, the psalmist shows us the way uh, for us to seek new life uh, for the new year. Now, of course, the author of the psalm did not uh, write this psalm for the occasion of the new year. Uh, he was in the throes of a far more intense uh, spiritual crisis. And not just himself, but this spiritual crisis uh, encompassed the whole people of God, the whole nation of Israel. Uh, the psalmist doesn't give us uh, enough historical information for us to pinpoint the time in which he wrote this psalm. Uh, One educated guess, however, is that this psalm was written sometime after the restoration of the people of Israel uh, from their exile uh, in Babylon. You'll remember from your Old Testament reading that it was because of the unfaithfulness, the idolatry, the unbelief of the people of Israel that the Lord uh, cast out his people from the land that he had given to them uh, as he uh, promised that he would do and he brought them uh, into the land of babylon to be exiles there uh, for 70 years and if this psalm was in fact written after the exile it makes good sense of what uh, the psalmist says in verse 1 he says lord you are favorable to your land you restored the fortunes of jacob and so the lord restored the fortunes of jacob when he uh, brought them back into that promised land after their 70 years of exile in babylon and that time of the return of the people of Israel back into the land that was a joyful, a wonderful time in the history of Israel. But, but clearly, by the time that the psalmist writes this, uh, something has gone wrong. Uh, Israel has lost its way because the psalmist pleads with the Lord in verse 4, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. The psalmist recognizes the need of the people of God to be restored back to the Lord that they have uh, gone astray. And we know from the scriptures that after Israel was restored back to the land of uh, back to the promised land that that all was not sweetness and light from that point on. We know that the Israelites were harassed by their enemies, enemies who even threatened their lives, and not only that, But in many different ways, the Israelites after the exile, they were faithless. They were unfaithful to the Lord. They did not keep his commandments. And so there were times after the exile when this psalm would have been the cry of the heart of the man of God, the faithful Israelite, as he saw his people um, abandoning the ways of the Lord. And he saw the need for them to be made right with God, to be renewed in their life in God. And so he prays for that spiritual renewal and revival for the people of Israel. And whatever the actual historical circumstances were, uh, this psalm still certainly applies to us as the people of God today. Uh, we too could cry out along with the psalmist in verse 4: Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Uh, with the psalmist, we can also uh, pray to the Lord that He would renew that life that He has given us in Christ. Uh, we ought always to seek. God's grace, that he would increase in us a zeal and hope and joy, a love for Christ, love for the people of God. And I trust that those are the desires of your hearts, that you desire as a believer in Christ to be renewed in the, the life and the joy that you have in Christ, to have the Lord revive your, your love for him, your love for, for others. And if those are the desires of your heart, then this, this psalm is for you. Uh, this is your prayer. And just as the psalmist uh, prays uh, on behalf of the people of Israel, so we too can, we can pray this psalm not only for ourselves, but uh, for our congregation, for our church. Uh, this is not to say that uh, as a congregation, I think that somehow we are spiritually lifeless. I don't, I don't think that at all. But nevertheless, we should always, as a church, seek a greater measure of the life-giving grace that God gives us as his people. We should long as a church for a deeper, for a richer fellowship with one another. We should long to have more zeal as a congregation for the worship of God, for the service of God, for a greater witness to the loss of the good news of the gospel. We should pray that as a church the word of Christ, the life of Christ would abound in us, increase in us as a congregation. In other other words, we should never be satisfied or complacent with where we are today uh, as a congregation. But we should adopt uh, the Apostle Paul's prayer uh, for the Ephesian church and make it our own for Mount Rose. He prayed that they would be filled with all the fullness of God that they would be filled with the fullness of God. That should be our prayer as well. And so this psalm is not just for each of us as an individual follower of Christ, but this is a psalm for us to pray collectively as one part of the greater body of Christ, that the Lord would revive us again, restore to us the joy of his salvation. Of course, any spiritual renewal or revival, whether it takes place in the life of An individual Christian or in the life of one congregation or whether the Lord is pleased to bring a a general uh, revival of his people across many churches uh, at whatever level, all genuine movements of spiritual renewal and revival are the product of God's grace. They are the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot manufacture uh, this blessing from God. We cannot manipulate Uh, God, uh, to give us uh, this blessing of renewed life. Nevertheless, in this psalm, the the Spirit of God shows us the path we must take if we are uh, to expect or to hope for uh, that renewal of life that comes to us by the grace of God. And if we we pray as the psalmist prays, if by faith, from the heart, uh, we pray to the Lord as the psalmist prays, I believe that by grace, we will be blessed with that renewed life, with that increased life and joy uh, in Christ that our hearts desire. And so with that in mind then, uh, the psalmist uh, shows us the path we must take to be renewed and restored uh, in the life that we've been given in Christ. And this path involves three things. First of all, we must remember the past mercies of God. Secondly, we must recognize our present need For the grace of God. And thirdly, we must reflect upon the future glories uh, promised us uh, by God. So first of all, we must remember the past mercies of God. So the first thing that the psalmist does as he begins uh, this prayer is that he looks back to a much happier time in the life of the people of Israel. He looks back to when the Lord poured out his blessings on his people. Uh, Look at verses 1 through 3. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. And so the psalmist describes uh, the, the blessings uh, and, and the grace that the Lord had given to his people in terms of his forgiving their iniquities, covering the sins of his people. And that would be the appropriate way for the psalmist to describe uh, the restoration of the people of Israel uh, from their exile in Babylon back to the Promised Land. It's appropriate that he would describe that in terms of the Lord's forgiveness, His grace towards His people. And that's because the reason that they were exiled to Babylon in the first place was because of their sin, their unfaithfulness, their idolatry. And so the, the Lord bringing His people back to the Promised Land then, This was just a consequence of that greater mercy, that greater grace that he has given to his people and that he has forgiven them. He has covered their iniquity. He has turned his anger away from them. He has restored them to himself. And of course, this describes exactly what God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus suffered and died in our place upon the cross. Because of that sacrifice of Jesus, of himself, God has forgiven our iniquities. Because the blood of Jesus was shed upon the cross, God has covered our sins. Because Jesus bore the condemnation that you and I deserve for our sins, because he took that upon himself, God has withdrawn his wrath from us. He has turned away his anger from us. If you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, God is no longer angry towards you as he once was because of your sin, but he has turned his anger from you. And notice in verse two, how the psalmist says that the Lord covered all their sin. All their sin. This is the extent of the grace of God to you and Jesus Christ. That when Jesus Christ suffered and died upon the cross, that when he bore that judgment that was ours for our sin, He took the guilt of all your sin, not just 80% of it or 90% of it or 99% of it, but 100% of your sin and guilt Jesus has dealt with. You are forgiven, all of it. And so as a believer in Christ, you have no sin that is not forgiven for Christ's sake. That truth alone As we reflect upon this grace that we have received in Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that we have been given this gift of everlasting life, that we are restored to the the fellowship and communion with God that God created us for. Uh, This truth alone, this gospel truth, this should be sufficient to fill our hearts daily with joy and peace and Christ and, and love for Christ. This is the time of year when uh, the cold and the flu and COVID are making their rounds. And I know some of you have uh, been sick recently, so you will appreciate this analogy. But after you've been sick for a time, you know, after you've been feeling terrible for a few days because of the flu or whatever, uh, there's, there's no better feeling than that first or second day after you recover from your sickness and You're feeling great, and you you feel great about feeling great. Uh, You are thankful for the health that you have. You consciously enjoy and appreciate that good health. It, It feels good just to feel good. But then a week goes by or so, and healthy is now normal. And you forgot all about what it's like to be sick. And you take it for granted. And you just count on it. And in the same way, it's so easy for us to forget just how blessed we are uh, to have received from God this um, amazing gift of his grace, the forgiveness of our sins, uh, the gift of due life. And that's why we need to do exactly what the psalmist does. We need to look back on the mercy, on the grace of God that he's given us in Jesus Christ and uh, to give thanks to God for that, that Because of what Jesus has done for us, that uh, we are new creations in Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. Our our hope is uh, assured of uh, glory in the world to come. And all of this, as we look back to Christ and his work for us, ought to be uh, a means. uh, Or it ought to be uh, the way in which God increases our, our joy in Christ. And so we must remember the past mercies of God. Uh, Secondly, we must recognize, as the psalmist does, our present need for the grace of God. So in verse 4, the psalmist turns his thoughts from God's mercies in the past uh, to the spiritual crisis in the present. And he sees the need for his people, the people of Israel, to be restored to God's good favor. He uh, he says in verse 4, he prays, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Uh, He recognizes that uh, Israel is suffering under the displeasure of God, even the anger of God. He says in verse 4, put away your indignation towards us. And in verse 5, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? How do we read these verses as Christians? Um, When we are unfaithful, when we sin against the Lord, does God punish us uh, for our sins? Do we bring God's wrath, his anger upon us because of our failure to obey him when we sin? Well, as Christians, we can never say that we are being punished for our sins in the sense that God is carrying out his judgment against us for our sin. We can't say that. We can't say that God judicially punishes us for our sins because Christ has taken that punishment and that judgment upon himself. Also, we cannot say that God is wrathful or angry towards us when we sin, if we mean by God's anger, His righteous wrath, His righteous indignation. And because, again, that would be to deny the gospel itself. It would be to deny that, that Christ suffered and bore that righteous wrath of God that was, that was ours. He took it upon Himself at the cross. And so we, we cannot say as Christians, we can never say that God is condemning us for our sins or that God is bringing his righteous judgment against us uh, judicially uh, for our sins because Jesus took our condemnation once for all. what we heard from uh, Romans chapter eight, verses one and two. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took that for us. But we can say, and we can certainly say that when we sin, we displease our father And in our sin, we don't enjoy the lights and the blessing of his fatherly favor. Again, God does not punish us for our sins in a judicial sense, but he does chastise and discipline us so that we will turn from our sin and turn back to God. And so we can displease our father by our sin. But even then, we are no less loved by God. God loves you no less as His redeemed and beloved child when you sin against Him than when you don't sin against Him. But because He loves you, because He loves you, He disciplines you. And when you find yourself under the discipline of the Lord, remember that in Jesus Christ, God is your Father. You are His child. He is dealing with you as a son or a daughter. Uh, The author of Hebrews uh, tells us about this discipline of the Lord that is born of the Father's love for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, he says, And and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? And so as a Christian then, God is not to you an avenging God who destroys you for your sin. That will be true for the unrepentant, the ungodly, the unrighteous. God will be to them an avenging God who will punish and condemn them for their sins, but not for you as a Christian. But what is God to you? He is a loving father. He is displeased by your sin, but because of his love for you, he disciplines you. He chastises you for your good, for your salvation. And so with that in mind, then, as Christians, knowing that, we can, we can pray these words of the psalmist in verse 4. Put away your indignation towards us. We can pray those words in this way. O oh Father, restore me to yourself by working in me repentance and faith that I might again enjoy the communion that I have with you as my Father in heaven, that I might again enjoy the light of your countenance upon me. In verse 5, the psalmist speaks of the anger of God. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Again, he's not speaking of God's judicial wrath or anger against the ungodly, but he's speaking of God's displeasure um, for his people, for their sin, and God is displeased with us when we sin. But the Scriptures assure us that those whom God has loved and redeemed in Jesus Christ, His displeasure um, will not last forever. Isaiah fifty four eight: In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your redeemer. Psalm one hundred three nine. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. As one who belongs to Jesus Christ, as one who is loved by God, know that God's purpose for you in Christ is for your lasting, your eternal blessedness and joy. And it may seem in this life that the discipline of the Lord may seem to go on forever. Or the suffering that God in this providence brings into your life may never seem to end. But God always has a loving and a gracious purpose in all that he does in your life. And for you as a Christian, there will be an end. There will be an end one day to suffering, to discipline, to affliction. One day it will give way to eternal joy, eternal life, eternal blessedness and glory. And so God's displeasure does not last forever. In verse 5, the psalmist, um, he asks these questions. Will you be angry with us forever? And I believe the psalmist knows already the answer. Just in asking those questions, he has the answer. He knows that the Lord's anger will not last forever against his people. And for that reason, he then finds the confidence that he needs to once again uh, to pray to the Lord for mercy, grace, and life. He says in verses 6 and 7, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. You'll notice that these two verses, 6 and 7, they come at the very middle of the psalm. And they really are the heart of the psalm. Uh, The psalmist sees his need. He sees his need uh, on behalf of the people of Israel for renewed grace, renewed favor uh, from God. And so he cries out for the restoration, for new life from the Lord And in these two verses, 6 and 7, there are a couple of uh, crucial truths that I want you to see um, in them. Uh, The first one is this, one I've already mentioned, and that is only God can give us new life. Uh, Verse 6, the psalmist says, will you not revive us again? The psalmist recognizes that God alone is the author of life. It is God alone who in the beginning created life. And even before that, from all eternity, God has infinite, perfect life within himself. And so God alone is the source of life. He is the one whose spirit sustains all life. He is the one who imparts new life to sinners dead in sins. And so there is no source of life. There is no source of eternal life outside of God. And how sad and tragic it is that so many in our world Refuse to come to Jesus Christ uh, for life. They refuse to um, come to the Son of God, the one who can give life. And yet they spend their entire lives vainly seeking for that life that they refuse to receive from Christ. But here is a promise in this prayer if you seek your life in Christ, He will give it to you. If you seek eternal life, if you seek the salvation, that you need in Jesus Christ, he will give that to you. And perhaps there is someone here today or someone hearing my voice, and that this, and this is the prayer that you need to pray. Perhaps you need to pray, Lord, give me eternal life in your son, Jesus Christ. Forgive my sins for the sake of Christ. Make me your child. Have you prayed this prayer? Have you come to the Son of God? to the Lord Jesus, for salvation from your sin and guilt and for salvation from the judgment that is to come. If you have not, if you are not trusting in Christ for eternal life, if you have not received that life from Christ, then today is the day to pray that prayer. And the Lord will give you his life and salvation in response to that prayer. So God alone can give us eternal life. And God alone can renew that life in us. uh, Just as we need uh, Christ for salvation and the gift of eternal life, so we need Christ to restore us in that life, to renew that life, to increase it in us. But the second truth I want you to see in verses 6 and 7 is that the goal, the end of this new life, this revival... Is joy in Christ. Look at verse 6. Will you not revive us again. That your people may rejoice in you. Why does the psalmist want to. Have this life from God. Renewed in him. So that he may rejoice. In the Lord as his God. And this is really a great. uh, Measuring stick. um, Or a great test. By which we can. um, Test our own hearts. And see. How healthy they are in terms of spiritual life. What brings you your greatest joy? What is the source of your greatest contentment or satisfaction? What is your chief delight? Do you find your greatest joy in knowing God as your Father and Jesus Christ as your Savior? Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, A Joy in the Lord is the ripest fruit of grace. All revivals and renewals lead up to it. And so we desire this renewed life in Christ because we desire to enjoy that communion that we have with Him, to rejoice in the Lord as our God. And so as the psalmist does, we too must recognize our need in the present. That we need to have the grace of God. We need Christ to renew his life in us. And thirdly, we must reflect upon the glory of the future. In the last part of the psalm, uh, the psalmist turns his attention to the future. Uh, Before he does that, though, he takes a moment in the middle of the prayer uh, to hear, to listen to what the Lord will say to him. He says in verse 8, and this is a prayer in itself. He says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Uh, The psalmist wants to hear the word of God. He wants to hear the Lord speak to him. So much of our spiritual struggles that we experience, uh, so much of our spiritual lethargy that we we so often feel or or the indifference or the coldness in our hearts, uh, so often the, the stem or the root of all of that is that We listen to the voices of everyone else, but we don't listen to the voice of the Lord. We don't listen to the voice of God as he speaks to us in the scriptures. But we listen to all kinds of other voices. Uh, We listen to the voices of ourselves. We listen to our own voices. When we convince ourselves that, that we know the way that we should go. We know what is best for us. We know what to do in order to find that joy and delight that our hearts seek. Or we listen to the voices of the world uh, that tell us that if we are to have true life and true abundance of of joy and peace, we we have to find that in this world somehow because this world is all that there is. And we listen to that voice. Or we listen to the voice of social media that tells us that everyone else in the world has an incredibly satisfied or satisfying and joy-filled life and we become discouraged and discontent. Or worst of all, we listen to the voice of the evil one who brings uh, to mind our, our sins and our failures of the past. And he tries to put upon our shoulders that burden of guilt that Christ has taken away from us. And this is why, because of all these competing voices, including our own voice, we need to open our ears. We need to tune our hearts to hear the voice of Christ speaking through his word. We need to pray as a psalmist does. Let me hear what the Lord will speak. And what is it that the Lord speaks to you? When you listen, he speaks peace to you. In verse 8, For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Of course, the Lord here is Jesus. And Jesus speaks peace to you and to me. His words are words of peace. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, let not, your, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But Jesus speaks peace to you, peace of heart, peace of mind, peace of conscience, peace with God. And after the psalmist opens his ears to hear the Lord speak words of peace to him, he also hears words of hope. And that hope takes the form in the promise in the psalm that one day the glory of God will will be present among his people. He says in verse 9, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Uh, It's almost impossible to to hear uh, this this affirmation of the psalmist, that, that salvation will come from the Lord, that glory will dwell in our land. It's almost impossible to hear that without thinking of those glorious words from the Gospel of John, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Yes, glory has come to dwell among us in the person of the incarnate son of God, full of grace and truth. But then the hope of the psalmist looks even further into the future, even beyond this coming of the Lord in the person of Christ. He looks forward to that great day when all creation, all that God has made shall be in perfect harmony with the Lord of righteousness and peace. And that hope of that renewed creation produces some of the most beautiful verses in all the Psalms. Look at verses 10 and 11. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness, righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land I'm sorry, let me start at verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. You remember from uh, Pilgrim's Progress that uh, when Christian and Hopeful, uh, in their journey to the celestial city, which of course is, uh, is heaven, That at one point in the story, in their journey, they meet up with uh, faithful shepherds in the Delectable Mountains. And the shepherds give uh, the two pilgrims, the two uh, uh, Christian and hopeful, uh, he gives them uh, what John Bunyan calls a a perspective glass, which is a telescope. And through this telescope, uh, they look far, far ahead and they can see the gates of the celestial city. And Bunyan tells us that the two pilgrims also saw, quote, some of the glory of that place. And with that vision of the glory, with that glimpse of the glory of the celestial city that they they see through the telescope, uh, Christian and hopeful, uh, they resume their journey uh, towards that destination. But as we read these verses in Psalm 85, verses 10 and 11, Um, It's as though the Lord has given us a, a telescope with which we can catch a glimpse of some of the glory of that place. Some of the glory of the new heavens and new earth, of the new creation, when Christ comes again and banishes forever all evil and wickedness. So here's a picture of that glory, and it's not just the salvation of the people of God, which is glorious, but it's the renewal of the entire creation. A world that is in perfect harmony with God its creator. Where the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God, the peace of God fill all things. A world where all sin and evil and pain and misery and death and sickness are, are banished forever. Here we have a glimpse of the glory that is to come. And just as hopeful and Christian needed a glimpse of that glory for their journey to the celestial city to strengthen them, to give them hope. So we, too, in our walk with Christ, we need to see a glimpse of this glory of the world that awaits us, that Christ is preparing for us. And so here's a picture of that glory, heaven and earth filled with the love, the righteousness, the peace of God. Well, the psalmist concludes his prayer with this declaration in verses 12 and 13. He says, yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Uh, by the end of the psalm, the psalmist is confident. He knows that God will bless his people. He knows that God will do good to his people and he knows that because he knows the Lord that he is good. He has always been good. He will always be good. And therefore he will do good to his people. And how true that is. For us as well, the God that we have come to know through his son, Jesus Christ, is a God who is good. He will do us good. And as you look back in time, you can see that the Lord has done what is good. You can look back and see the past mercies of God that he has given you his son, Jesus Christ. That through his suffering and death, he has given you his life. He has adopted you as his child. As you look at the present, you can see how much you you need the Lord to continue to do good to you, to restore to you the joy of your salvation. And as you look to the future, you can see the incomparable good that that Christ has in store for you, uh, eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. God is faithful. And as you, by the grace of God, as you seek him uh, in prayer... Uh, as the psalmist did, praying these words of the psalmist. uh, The Lord will answer. He will revive you again, that you may rejoice in him. Uh, The Lord, he will give you new life for the new year. Let's pray.